0: This is Dr. Saba Marouf, and you are listening to Unsung Heroes, uncovering stories of inspiration and action here on Podcast Detroit. She said, where'd you want to go? How much you want to risk? I'm not looking for somebody with some superhuman gifts, some superhero, some fairytale bliss. Something I can turn to, somebody I can kiss. I want something just like this. Doo-doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. Doo-doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo, doo-doo. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unsung Heroes: Stories to Inspire here on the podcast Detroit Network. So here we are. Um, it's episode 21, and this is actually our first show for season 2 Ooh. Woohoo! Yeah, I took, we took a little hiatus.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: Thanks for being here. I'm so glad to
1: still be a part of this.
0: I know. I want to introduce, again, my co-host, Calvin Moore, who's hey, been with us since the beginning and before the beginning. He was part of the inspiration for this show. Thanks so much, Calvin, for Great. being here. No problem. Um, I want to welcome you all back to um, like as our regular and loyal listeners, and also a warm welcome to our new listeners. And as you all know, on this show, we showcase inspirational individuals making an impact in unique ways. Uh, We highlight narratives and share journeys in an effort to inspire you to change the world in whatever way you see fit. We've shared stories of strength and resilience and narratives of people following their passion and true calling in life. And you can check out all of our previous episodes on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and, of course, www.podcastdetroit.com. Look for Unsung Heroes. Uh, I'm super excited. Um, We have an amazing lineup of some truly inspiring individuals in the weeks to come. And if you're new to our show, check out our previous episodes. Um, People are always telling me that they heard one or two, or sometimes all of them. But don't worry about going in any particular order. Just pick a topic and go. Um, And in the works, we've got some authors, activists, individuals bringing people together in unique ways. So we're really excited to keep the show going. And today I'm very humbled and honored. to have someone uh, very special. Uh, I want to introduce Abdul (laughs) El-Sayed. Salam alaikum. Hi. Thank you for having me. I really
2: appreciate the opportunity to be (laughs) here. Thank you
0: so much. Um, I'm, again, so humbled and honored because, um, so, Abdul is running for governor of Michigan if you've been living under a rock and you don't know, Um, but I'm so happy that you took out time um, and really honored. Um, You're very busy uh, on the campaign trail, so thank you.
2: Of I'm, course. I'm honored to be here. It's really nice to uh, sit with you and, and Calvin, and I uh, look forward to the conversation.
0: Great. So just as a brief introduction, um, Abdul was born and raised in Michigan. His family reflects the diversity of our state and includes immigrants who left Egypt in pursuit of greater opportunity in America, as well as farmers, teachers, and small business owners who have lived in Gratiot County, Michigan for generations. Abdul is a product of Michigan public schools. He captained his high school football, wrestling, and lacrosse teams and went on to play lacrosse for the University of Michigan where he graduated in 2007, and he was honored to deliver the student commencement speech alongside President Bill Clinton. Abdul went on to become a Rhodes Scholar. He earned a doctorate from Oxford University and a medical degree from Columbia University, and as a public health professor, he became an internationally recognized expert in health policy and health inequalities. At 30, he became the youngest health official of a major American city when he came home to rebuild Detroit's health department after it was privatized during the city's bankruptcy. And as health director, he was responsible for the health and safety of over 670,000 Detroiters working tirelessly to ensure government accountability and transparency and reduce cross-generational poverty. And so, again, we're so honored to have Abdul with us in the studio today, and we're very excited to share his journey.
2: Well, thank you for having me. I really look forward to the conversation.
0: Awesome. I'm so excited. Um, so just to kind of start out, you know, as I was looking over um, all your amazing accomplishments um, and even just like as a young, you know, young man, captain of, you know, all-star athlete, I mean, in a lot of ways, your story is as American as apple pie. Um, and yet, you know, your family is very diverse. Your parents um, are immigrants from Egypt. You've enjoyed a multicultural upbringing and continue to do so. Um, so I just thought we'd start from there. If you can just talk a little bit about these early experiences, how they shaped you, your family, and really how this diversity has helped your, um, kind of um, form, formulate your perspective as a leader and as an American.
2: Yeah, I, I had the privilege of uh, growing up in a really diverse household. Um, you know, as a joke, the, the household that I grew up in was built by Mohammed and Jackie. And, um, and, you know, with, with all the, the, the colors that come with that. And, uh, you know, my childhood summers uh, would have me sometimes getting on an airplane before uh, school was even over to go out to Egypt and spend time with my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins uh, in the one bedroom apartment where my, uh, my grandfather, who was a vegetable salesman, and my uh, grandmother, who was illiterate, raised their six kids. My father was the oldest. And I'd spend time with with that part of my family. Um, And then I'd I'd come back in the middle of the summer and uh, I'd go up to Montcalm County, where my family has had a cottage on a lake for over 90 years. And I'd hang out with the other side of my grandparents, my aunts and uncles and my cousins. And, you know, I had the opportunity to traverse these two worlds and never the twain shall meet, right? Uh, They couldn't even imagine the lives that one another led. Um, But I got the opportunity to engage them all. And it taught me a lot about some of the, you know, what is the least common denominator of being human um, and the shared experiences that people have in deeply diverse settings. You know, when people talk about the inspiration that that brings them to believe in a world that can be better than the world that they're living and that they can be a part of that, um, they tend to be the same things. And doesn't matter if you're talking to your grandma, uh, from, from Alexandria who never had the opportunity to learn how to read or write, uh, or your grandma from Flint, Michigan, who, uh, trained as a, as a nurse at Hurley hospital. Um, the things that they want for their future are the same, the things that they care about, the things that you not unify them in, uh, in, in how they situate themselves in the world, pretty similar. And mm-hmm. that has everything to do with a sense of a future that they're a part of building. Um, you know, I, my grandma couldn't imagine the, the life that I lead. Um, Uh, in in, in Alexandria, but I knew she loved me in the same way that, you know, uh, Grandma Judy and um, in, uh, who now lives in Livingston County uh, loved me the same way. It's the same look. It's the same sort of belief in what you can do if you put your mind to it. And so uh, I really had the privilege of being able to to be exposed to all kinds of people and, um, and feel love from all kinds of people. And, uh, and that's something that I, I don't take for granted. And so you know, in thinking about the experience of, um, of, of running for office in a large state like Michigan, uh, we, we often take for granted how diverse this state is um, or, uh, you know, we, we sort of abstract it in our minds. Yes, Michigan is a diverse state, but I've had the opportunity to go to 80 different cities and 40 different counties now, um, and get a feel for just how, how, uh, diverse it really is and, 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 share people's stories with them and learn from them and talk to them about the challenges that keep them up at night and that they talk about their, uh, with their families over dinner. And so it's been, um, helpful for me to have grown up in, in such a diverse, uh, household, while uh, being able to meet people from all kinds of diverse households that make this state uh, as beautiful
1: as it is. So that's really interesting to me in that you bring up the diversity. And I think we, we talked about that a little bit offline. I love uh, the diversity that you bring to the table and the fact that we do live in a huge diverse state. I think a lot of people assume that uh, Michigan is very monolithic in a way, mm-hmm. and it's not. Um, and so you're running for public office. You're running uh, to be the governor of the state of Michigan. And for me, my understanding of politics—the reason for politics—I was taught this growing up—is ultimately to better serve your neighbor, right? Um, to to be the change you want to see in the world. And not everybody is geared to do that. So again, God bless you to to people who can do what you're doing. But tell us a little bit. Of, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself before you got involved in politics, at least career-wise, because you, you talked about family life. So let's talk about what your career tra- trajectory was uh, prior to Abdul getting into politics. Mm-hmm. I was never supposed to run for office. Okay. Uh, it
2: was never part of the plan. I, um, you know, in growing up in a family like this one, uh, I, I realized a couple of things about myself uh, pretty early. Number one, I really love people. I love uh, learning about them and with them. And uh, and in and, and understanding what brings them to the day, table of their life every day. Um, and I also really love science. Both of my parents were engineers, and so science was just uh, what we talked about in our house. And I remember before uh, Google came along and ruined it all, uh, <laughs> we'd have these great conversations about, you know, one of my parents would uh, start with some premise and just say prove X, and we would spend the entire dinner trying to hash it out.
1: Uh, now Wait, you did just, you have a giant encyclopedia set, though? <laughs> we did. Okay, because everybody um, seemed to have that. No, yeah. nobody has it anymore. The, circa 1994, you know, that's true.
2: <laughs> right? <Yeah>. <laughs> encyclopedia <laughs> Britannica. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, that you, you use for all
0: your research projects
2: exactly. for school. Yep, don't have to we just don't even <laughs> do that anymore. They don't
0: come home and, like, go to a library and look up something. It's yeah. kind of sad. But
2: I'm sorry, continue. <laughs> yeah, no, so, um, so I, I thought I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to use science to help people. Um, I went off to uh, the University of Michigan uh, where I, I did my undergraduate degree, and um, I remember coming uh, home after that first term, and I decided that I wanted to study biology and politics. And my dad, uh, you know, who made it out of Egypt because he was – the best engineering student in, in, in his class, um, in his graduating year, Uh, I sat down with him and, uh, and you know, he's asking me how college was. And I said, you know, Bubba, I think I know what what I want to study. I want to study biology and politics. And he just looks at me for a minute. You're very very confused <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but you know they're not as different as as you might think um, biology is is a system of rules that our cells use to make complex decisions about scarce resources in our bodies and um, politics is a, a set of rules uh, that our communities use to make uh, complex decisions about scarce resources in society okay and as I as I moved through my um, career trajectory, I realized that uh, it actually is the politics that matter more uh, when you ask yourselves, uh, yourself about mm-hmm. who gets sick and why. Access to a very basic set of things that not everybody gets to take for granted. Um, a, a, a good, stable job that pays a living wage, that puts a good roof over someone's head, uh, puts good food on their table, clean air in their lungs, clean water in their cups, um, allows them to walk a community without being victimized um, as a function of who they are in that community. And um, and so I decided that I wanted to, to focus on the politics of health. Uh, I did a PhD in, in public health uh, while I was in Oxford, and um, I finished medical school and made the odd decision not to train uh, as a clinician, but instead to follow my passions into public health, um, and I spent a couple of years as a, uh, a professor in epidemiology, which is the study of the Uh, distribution and determinants of disease and populations. And my focus was uh, on understanding health disparities. Why is it that certain certain communities suffer more uh, of preventable diseases than others and what can we do about it? And then realized uh, after a couple of years as a professor that, you know, it was a lot of fun, a great life. I got to fly all over the world and talk about interesting ideas, but I wasn't making the impact that I wanted. And I wanted to be able to fix with my hands the things that I was thinking about, um, and got the opportunity to come home to Detroit uh, to rebuild Detroit's health department. And uh, that, to me, was sort of the ideal, perfect job. Uh, now, um, you know, when I graduated from Michigan, I, I had the opportunity to, to deliver the commencement speech. And uh, the speaker that year um, that anybody came to pay any attention to was was Bill, was Bill Clinton. And uh, I remember, I, you know, I gave my speech, and he gave his. He said some really nice things about my speech, which I really appreciated. And then after... Um, after the speech, he, he sort of pulled me aside and just looks at me for a minute and he's like, why are you going to medical school? And I was like, wait Mm a second, nobody ever asks a graduating college student why they're going to medical Mm -hmm. school. Like, that's like the thing that everybody wants their kid to do. It seems so beneath you. I don't know. (laughs) I was like, I was like, I really like science. I really like people. He's like, look, I, I just really think you should consider a career in public service. And I, I remember in that moment, um, in my mind, uh, you know, you have your mind's voice and then you have what you actually say. Uh, and, in my mind, the whole time, I was like, "Do you do see me right like i'm i 'm pretty obviously from the Middle East, right, and you definitely saw my name because it 's eleven letters and that 's just the first <laughs> name right and um, and uh, you know that was six years after uh, after nine eleven which had so shaped uh, my young adult life um, in thinking about how I would uh, embody my americanness um, and so Uh, You know, I I, I sort of had always been heeding his advice. um, And uh, I was in Detroit rebuilding the health department. It was a fantastic opportunity to be able to actually do the work that mattered. Um, We took that department. It was a five person, 85 contractor institution uh, in the back of the building where people pay their parking tickets. We were able to um, grow it to to five campuses. Uh, we more than doubled the size of our staff, multiplied city funding for public health 10 times, uh, launched programs that really situated the health department uh, at the crux of being able to solve challenges of uh, of intergenerational poverty. We did things like guarantee access to glasses for children uh, delivered at school uh, across the city. Um, we stood up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in our state when a petroleum refinery in Southwest wanted to increase its emissions. We organized the community and forced them together to invest $10 million to reduce their emissions overall. Um, and then heard about Flint. And, um, you know, I, I had in my role uh, at the city come uh, up close and personal to. Um, some of the you know the, the political decision makers um, and realized you know, i didn't always agree with the way that they set their agendas and the place that they put public health and public education and things that I think are critical to what a government ought to be able to do and Flint, for me, was sort of this disastrous wake-up call. Um, When your state government poisons 9,000 kids because they make a system of decisions that started well before the current administration, uh, that puts a certain focus on uh, corporate elites and a certain under-focus on... Um, you know, poor and working people in communities, uh, it ends up in, in the kind of devastation that we saw in the water crisis. We got to work immediately at the health department. We were the first city nationwide to have every single school, daycare, and Head Start tested for lead in the water. We tested 360 schools in six months, and the protocol that we put together is now model practice nationwide. Um, But I had to ask myself, you know, what is my responsibility in this moment? And, uh, you know, I was watching Flint happen. I was frustrated by uh, some of the slow pace of change uh, in trying to move um, some of the stakeholders at the city level to work on issues that aren't – you know, aren't high profile, but are critically important, uh, asthma prevention, lead poisoning prevention, um, you know, making sure that we were paying attention to public health as the city was, uh, embarking on, uh, on its path to, to redevelopment, making sure that it was equitable redevelopment and, and redevelopment that benefited the people that I went and visited every week, um, out in the neighborhoods. And, um, and then, you know, watching as, uh, the, the individual who currently occupies the white house, uh, came to power, um, preying on the fears of, uh, of people in communities all over, uh, our country. And in that moment, uh, whether it was the local level, the state level or the national level, it was a moment where I had to ask myself whether or not we, uh, as a society were on the right track. Um, particularly given the lofty aspirations that our constitution, uh, and our founding fathers present to us, right? The opportunity, uh, to truly dignify the sense that people are equal, um, to believe in a society that that can come together and self-govern on a set of principles that uh, demand a certain paying attention to of equity, uh, a willingness to balance across um, the various uh, the various forces that 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 play into our society, uh, recognizing that the best and most important aspiration of government is to dignify the lives of people uh, who are less fortunate, and um, and in that moment, I. I I, I sort of had to ask myself what my responsibility was, and um, that was the moment that I realized I, I needed to run. Um, I needed to run because I knew I had the skill set to be able to solve a set of challenges that we face imminently in Michigan. Uh, whether that's making our um, our economy more equitable and unlocking it for people who've been locked out, just thinking about the experiences of people uh, like my uncle, who's a truck driver, uh, grew up in Gratchett County. Uh, Whether that's the responsibility to rebuild public education, something that I benefited from as the child of immigrants growing up in this state. Uh, Whether that's a responsibility to provide equitable, affordable, accessible health care for people, uh, or the responsibility to protect the fact that, you know, we sit on 21% of the world's fresh water which we put in danger every single day and too many people in places like Detroit and Flint can't rely on. Even as we allow huge corporations like Nestle to bottle our water for cents. And so, uh, so I, I thought I had the skill set to be able to, 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 to build and to move uh, the bureaucracy in the direction that it needed to move. Um, and there's something really important about people who represent uh, our collective diversity as a country standing up and uh, demanding that we actually do uh, dignify um, who we are as a country at our core and at our ideals. Um, and I saw the opportunity to do those both in one moment. And so I took it.
0: Wow. Um, was there someone when Bill Clinton said that to you, was there something in your heart that was, it like really spoke to you and there was something that, or was it just something you had never considered or was it like, wow, yeah, maybe?
2: I mean, I, a, a lot of people have told me that I should consider doing it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I uh, two years later, won a Rhodes Scholarship and, um, you know, and, and, and in Oxford, uh, you're around a lot of people who, uh, are either in the arena or uh, very much want to be in the arena. Um, but again, I, for me, I, um, I always felt like politics was a little bit unrigorous. And, uh, and at that point, I was training as a scientist and as a doctor. And uh, I thought, you know, I can be a really great technical leader. Um, but part of it was also, in effect, in my own mind, apologizing for my demographic uh, um, We'll just say my my, my demographic outlay. Um, the fact that I am uh, Egyptian American and Muslim. Um, I'm young. I look the part of all three. Um, and uh, and so saying, you know, that's that's kind of off limits for you. Um, so it's like you're really good. Yeah, you'd be really good at what you do. Um, and and that'll be great. Um, until you you sort of you sort of glimpse uh, the 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 ways that a lot of these politicians make decisions. Um, And you have to ask yourself on what value set are you Mm -hmm. making these decisions such that you consistently um, side on uh, or with uh, those who have versus those who don't um, and seem to be speaking uh, for people who um, who have all the power. And, you know, I made it a habit when I was at the health department uh, to go, um, you know, without any staff by myself uh, into communities to talk to people about what they wanted in the health department and um, had conversations with people about what they felt uh, or how they felt um, their government was working for them or not. and. Um, you start to realize that there's a huge disconnect between the political establishment and uh, the people they ostensibly are supposed to be serving. And in, 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 in those conversations, uh, there was a recognition that um, to do this well would mean being able to bring all of the voices that I've had the opportunity to hear – both growing up and uh, and also in, in that kind of a role, um, and to remember them first and foremost. I think, you know, I judged my leadership at the health department based on uh, what the least empowered person uh, on my team said about my leadership, and more importantly, what the least empow- empowered person in the city said about what we were doing uh, to serve. Um, and I think there is a willingness to stand um, with and, and, and humbly with people uh, who uh, are disempowered, and then stand up to people who have had power, um, recognizing that great leaders uh, are able to um, to have that humility with people who don't have the power they do, um, and to to stand firm uh, among people who have the same or more. Um, and I just didn't see that in our political class, and I don't see that in our political class quite often. And um, you know, and that's how my parents taught me to uh, to lead, and uh, I do hope that I can be that kind of a leader.
0: So that kind of leads me into my next question. Um, And you kind of touched on this, but I guess, you know, looking back at your experience working in Detroit, what did you love most about, um, working with the people of Detroit and what were some of the challenges?
2: People in the city are just incredibly resilient and there is a, um, certain temperament, uh, about people in Detroit, um, that just brings forward this, you know, unique capacity to, um, to take what life, uh, delivers, you know, and, and, uh, and turn it into something that's joyous and uh, and heartwarming, even in the setting where it may start out as a lot of pain. And um, and so, being able to work with Detroiters uh, to talk about the challenges we need to solve, and then turn those 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 conversations into products and um, and deliver them and. Uh, watch how they changed people's experiences. I mean, that is just incredibly empowering. Um, you know, my, my favorite uh, moments of my role in the city was when we had finally uh, built out our uh, glasses program and the opportunity to go and give a kid a pair of glasses um, and, and watch as this kid puts on his glasses and sort of sees the world anew. Um, and, and know that that program is going to provide 5,000 more pairs of glasses for 5,000 more kids uh, this year alone. And um, and that's really empowering. Uh, it's the ability to, to use uh, this bureaucracy that was always intended to be about solving problems to, to deliver really pointed solutions to problems that people face that have impact far beyond – uh, just that solution itself, right? So that kid is going to go and sit in his class. All of a sudden, the blackboard makes sense. And all of a sudden, uh, all of the things that that teacher was talking about makes a little bit more sense, even if he's sitting in a class of 40 kids and you know, the teacher, unfortunately, doesn't have the kind of time to be able to pay unique, special attention to him. At least what, what she's writing on the board seems to be a little bit clearer. And that potentially can change the trajectory of a life. If you look at um, uh, the statistics on, um, on glasses, on average, right, and uh, if you if you took any group of, of five year old kids, twenty percent of them are going to need a pair of glasses. Um, if you look at children who are uh, in the juvenile justice system, that number jumps to seventy percent, which tells you something about what causes that. And I, you know, I was not a great student when I was a kid. Um, largely because I got really bored in school. And when I got bored, I, I, I endeavored to entertain myself. And, right. <laughs> um, you know, that wasn't always the most productive use of my time or anybody else's time. Um, but I, you know, it, it was, I was a kid who was bored who was trying to entertain mm-hmm. myself. Now I can imagine, thankfully I have, um, I have good vision, but if nothing, the teacher was writing on the board made sense and nobody took the time to clarify because, you know, they, they found out that I needed glasses there's a moment where you're like, okay, fine. I'm going to entertain myself in some way. And over time, I now remember when I was a little kid, like once you get in trouble a couple of times, mm-hmm. especially if you are a darkly complexioned boy, mm-hmm. right, you are now a problem child. Mm-hmm. And now that you're a problem child, everybody treats you as a problem child. So what do you do, right? You just make more mischief because, well, that's who you are now. Um and you can think about the trajectory that that puts you on, and uh, you know. And thankfully, I had a tremendous amount of privilege growing up, and I had parents who, uh, who you know, hawked on me on my grades. And so, right. I um, imagine their parent-teacher conferences were uh, very upsetting. Yeah, no, I,
1: you know, I
2: remember one moment, my my uh, my my dad um, uh, walking into a parent-teacher conference, and um, you know, being told that I was, uh, you know, I was having trouble in my classes, and my dad. Um, you know f- to, to his credit you know stood up for me he's like listen this kid is smart it's, he just gets really bored. I, I've, I've seen him at home. He engages. It's not him. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, he and the teacher ended up getting into a, a disagreement about my, my general capacity to, uh, to do my work. Um, and now you're a Rhodes scholar. Well, so yeah. you know, that teacher was clearly wrong. Yeah. Right? Well, <laughs> the teacher was clearly wrong, but, but my dad, my, to his credit also, uh, we, my dad walked out of the room and I'm like kind of puffing up my chest, like, you know, my dad, my dad actually thinks I'm smart. <laughs> and then, and then, and then immediately started also to show me what he also, thought of me. right. So, <laughs> of course, right. Um, so, you know, but, but I had that kind of attention and a lot of kids don't. And, um, and so just a very simple thing, like being able to give a kid a pair of glasses can potentially change the trajectory on which that kid is going. And it's a small thing and there's so many other things we have to do. Um, but there's, there's, I think value in that. And my, my sense is that government at its best is about solving problems, uh, that, that far that extend beyond uh, you know the simple solution but are work together to create the circumstances within which everybody has access to the best most dignified life and you know for me when I was um, when I would walked into the health department uh, I I three weeks into the job I, you know I was I was sort of floundering I'm like where do you even start um, and I knew there was there' were so many things to build um, but I was looking for a, a thesis w- what is this department going to do how is it going to operate and um, I was uh, touring one of our vaccination clinics and got to meet a, a three-year-old little boy. He um, was the fourth child of a 21-year-old mom. Um, and he met his father maybe four times in his life because his dad's in jail. Um, and this kid, he did something very peculiar for a three-year-old instead of, you know, the usual three-year-old introduction, which is, uh, you know, the parent introduces you to the three-year-old. The three-year-old then buries their face in the parent. Um, and, you know, and, and, and you never actually get to meet the three-year-old. Right. He just... Looked me in the eye, walked up to me, gave me a hug and walked back to his mom, which was like hyper rational for a three year old. Um, (laughs) But also takes just a lot of guts. And um, and you look at the life circumstances in which he is living. And uh, if you were to take the statistics and extrapolate from where he sits, um, the the life that he looks like he may lead does not at all justify the confidence that he has that any kid should have in the life that they have in front of them. And I realize that for us, our responsibility in public health and in government is to justify the kind of confidence that any three-year-old should have about the life in front of them. It doesn't matter about the circumstances of a child. And this is the frustration that I have with uh, a lot of the arguments that you hear um, you know, pushed forward by conservatives about individual agency. My well, kid has no agency about... know the family that he is he has been given and the circumstances of the poverty in his neighborhood that kid deserves a shot no matter what and our job is to create the circumstances within which that kid has a shot and every other single kid like him has a shot and his mom has a shot and his dad has a shot because God knows the circumstances of their lives right they tell a story of a cycle Uh, And our job is to interrupt that cycle. Um, And so starting with with a child like him, I think... Uh, it is an easy way to be able to really think about the user experience of government. And so to me, this, this boy's name is Demarius. I always tried to think about what is Demarius's user experience of what we're going to do, right? How does that change the circumstances of his mom's life? How does it change the circumstances of his dad's life? And how does that change the circumstances of his life in ways that may be imperceptible, right? Um, and and you can't necessarily point to and say, health department provided X, right? They came and talked to me, et cetera. No it 's about how you change the circumstance the environment uh, within which that boy is being and doing like like boys and girls do, um, and so that is the way that I think about what we as a state ought to do, and you know the, 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 the vantage point of a health department um, is, is is relatively limited, but when you think about all of the things that the state does around basic things like roads and infrastructure, public education, access to good health care or not. Um, access to environmental protections, which, which turn into clean air uh, and fresh water, something as simple as turning on your tap or literally taking a deep breath in, which is some, the first thing we all do in our lives um, and the thing that we continue to do until we die. Um, those are things that the state has unique capacity to fix. Um, and for me, a big reason why I'm motivated to do this, because if we can get it right, then there's a chance for for, for for a boy like him and children like him all over the state. And it doesn't matter if that kid's in Detroit or a place like Kalkaska, right? There is suffering across the state. And if we can get it right, then we're creating the means of equity and the means of a dignified life for people all over the state. It doesn't have to be this sort of regional, racial, religious divide thing. I mean, we, we, we in the state, unfortunately, uh, have been the victims of politicians who have sought to divide us to say uh, that these identity politics are what matter. No, the, the Experience of being uh, poor or working class in a place like Kalkaska or a place like Detroit is actually quite similar. Um, If we're willing to abstract out of the color of of skin or the place where someone lives to actually think deeply about the experience again, the user experience of government for those people, they're actually quite similar.
1: So I'm going to ask you a a really long question uh, because you've mentioned a couple times uh, you are of Muslim faith, which I believe is beautiful. Uh, however, there are going to be people who are going to use that against you. We were just talking about divides. But before we, we got online, I told you what my background is. And I, I look at the history of religion in the United States, and it's kind of funny because it can go from being a concern to being a liability, right? So for, for Kennedy, the big concern was who is, he, who is he going to be loyal to, the United States or the Pope, right? He did win. Uh, Mitt Romney, when he was running, you know, Mormons, it got the kind of kooky thing going on. What's going on? Barack Obama black liberation theology type of church that he went to. So he had to make a big speech about being you know black in America and then also about the church that he was a part of and he had to distance himself. Uh, but all those still fell under the umbrella in some way, shape, or form of the predominant religion in the United States, which is Christianity. Uh, you have openly stated, you know, I am Muslim. I know that there are a lot of people, I mean, the, the current resident of the White House used a lot of fear-mongering uh, to scare a lot of people uh, about... Brown, brown skin people who are of another faith, right? So, how do you respond to people who would use your faith as a liability against you?
2: Yeah, so I think I think it, n- number one, uh, just to put it in context, I think a lot of it is somewhat overblown. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I have family who voted for Donald Trump, and these are people who uh, you know I've lived and communed with my whole life, and in the end, they voted for him because they felt like he was the only candidate for president uh, in the general election who was paying attention to their their day-to-day challenges, and he was exploiting them, but he was paying attention to them. And um, when when you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, you, you generally pick something hard, mm-hmm. right? And um, and and so I think it's it's somewhat overblown. I've also been all over the state, and. Uh, Something I know having been born and raised in this state is that Michiganders are good people. They're just Mm -hmm. really, really good people. And um, I think there is an atmosphere of fear that has been driven uh, by people like Donald Trump and others um, that has has sort of brought this into a national level conversation. But really when you sit down with folks, Mm -hmm. they want to know whether or not you care about the challenges that they face day to day in their lives. And if you are talking about those challenges and you are demonstrating why and how you care the rest of it sort of falls away right and when i do get questions about my faith they're usually not uh, as much about how i pray as they are about what i pray for right and you know i think people of faith or people of no faith at all uh, generally, pray for or hope for the same sets of things, right? right? Uh, the people around them in their day-to-day lives, right? My family, my wife, my soon-to-be daughter, um, the the extended family, my my grandparents and my aunts and uncles, whether they're in Alexandria or uh, or in in Gratchit County, um, and then my state and my country and people all over the world, and a general sense of peace and uh, quietude and um, solace and uh, the you know the the um, the, the, the sense of a world that uh, anyone and everyone can live in and, uh, and have the dignity and uh, prosperity that, that anyone should have uh, as a citizen of our world and as a human. So um, those are the things I pray for. Um, I might do it in a, in a little bit of a different way and, and, and do it in a different, in a different language. Um, but those are the things that people of faith all over. Pray for and you know my grandma uh, and my grandpa with whom I lived while I was a student at Michigan are uh, deacons at their Presbyterian Church which I've spoken at many times and um, you know and 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 we've uh, we've had conversations deep conversations about just how similar uh, our faiths really are okay. Um and so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't dignify um, the fear-mongering mm-hmm. uh, just because it's not worth dignifying. And m- what I've always realized is that ultimately hate is, um, is a consequence of two things that come together, fear uh, and, and ignorance. And there is no circumstance where you are going to beat fear with more hate, right? Generally, like if you see a child deeply afraid of something, there is a feeling there um, that has taken over their rational thinking and most of the time, if you give them something more to fear, they will fear more. Um, and so, you know, you just kind of have to be gentle and be kind, um, but be persistent yeah. um, and and don't back down, right? Um, and so, you know, I had this woman uh, named Sally come up to me. Um, and I'll never forget Sally because – She's probably in her seventies. She had like the the perfect hair head of of
1: of like white curls. She's definitely in her seventies because I don't think anybody named Sally has been born since the nineteen forties <laughs> yeah, at this point. Yeah, right? That, I mean, <laughs> she was a decided, decidedly a Sally, right from from Westland.
2: Okay. Um, I was speaking at a church there, and uh, she just came up to me. And, you know, most of the time, you, you know, you're meeting people afterwards. There's a handshake. She didn't. She did away with a handshake. She literally just put her hand on my face. And I was like, you've definitely got my attention. Uh, say what you need to say. Sally. And she just looked at me for a second. She said, you know, um, there are going to be a lot of people who look like me who, ha- who, who fear you. Uh, but you've got a really nice smile. And I hope that you'll keep smiling because at the end of the day, you can't really hate somebody who's smiling at you. Mm,
1: that's So, so true.
2: you know, I, I think all of us could use just a little bit more Sally in our lives. and um, And so at the end of the day, I'm going to keep, uh, keep campaigning. I'm going to give it everything I have. Um, I think I'm going to win. Um, and I think I'm going to win because what people need are solutions to the problems in their day-to-day lives. And um, what I've demonstrated both in the work that I've done um, and in the work that I hope I can do and in the, uh, the set of solutions that we are bringing to the table is that we have listened, is that we have the ability to, to solve problems, um,
1: and that um, our state would be better off um, if I was governor. I think it's great uh, what you're doing. And in terms, of one of the other things that I think can lead to I mean, you, one of the things I think can lead to those kinds of problems as well, though, is just a general laziness. Uh, I would rather look at the issues. I'm sitting here listening to you talk. You're taking the time to come in here. You're taking the time to go into churches, to uh, people's public spaces, right? Uh, and saying, hey, this is what we're running on. This is what I believe in. This is how I think I can help. This is why I think I should win. Uh, I think that's awesome. If I'm going to dislike a candidate or like a candidate, it should be based on what they're running on, not based on what they look like Mm -hmm. or what direction they're facing when they pray or how often they pray in a day. So I loved your answer there. Absolutely. Absolutely beautiful. there.
0: And I love that, too. I mean, it's so true. I've always thought that it's it takes a really mean person. I mean, it takes a lot of effort when someone smiles at you to not smile back. That's like a lot of voluntary muscles involuntary <laughs> muscles that you're suppressing there. So I love that answer takes too. It takes more
1: muscles to frown than to uh, than That's to what smile. Say, yeah, yeah. sort of uh, you're the doctor, is that true? Well, <laughs> she's the doctor. Uh, right? She
2: actually <laughs> practices. <laughs> I um I mean look, at the end of the day, we are all human. And uh and if you if you are willing to remember that however that person is looking at you or screaming at you or whatever, that this is a human uh whose whose dignity uh, and value um, is equal to all other humans um, and you are willing to face their fear with a certain amount of love they'll uh, mm. they 'll soften up they always do right i mean mm. that's just that 's just the nature of people and um, and the other thing that I always try and remind uh, myself and everyone uh, on our campaign is that when we govern, we will govern for everyone, and I kind of love the fact that. When I'm elected, there are going to be a very small minority of people who fundamentally hate the fact that I am their governor as a Muslim guy. But I want them to have to deal with the fact that after four or eight years of my leadership, that their lives are just a little bit better. Right. And deal with the dissonance of that. Hmm. So uh, my job will be to govern for everyone, whether they love me, hate me or something in the middle. Um, And that is my responsibility as a leader. And um, that has to be the attitude with which I campaign. And so, um, you know, I love the state of Michigan. I love the people in the state of Michigan. Um, And I think probably most importantly, I care fundamentally about their well-being. And I'm not going to let the hate of a few uh, get in the way of what I think I can do to make their lives a little bit better.
0: Wow. Well, amazing. Thank you again so much for coming in. I'm so uh, so happy that we were able to have this conversation and share. I, mean, I know you've done countless interviews, but um, just being able to hear these snippets and these glimpses from your journey is um, just uh, so empowering, actually, I think, for all of us. And as a Muslim American, I am really, I'm so happy that, um, that you chose to run and that it's you with your background and um, your personal background and your accolades. Um, and I know that you're going to do well, and I'm praying for a successful end to this journey as well. But in any way, what, however it ends, I think it's a success story. I mean, you're an inspiration for so many, so many people and so many um, of us as minorities in this country too.
2: Well, I appreciate you having me on. And um, you know, I think it's really important that uh, folks like you all uh, do things like this uh, because I think um, the conversation has to shift. And if the conversation can shift, it's going to be because we are moving that conversation forward. You know, a lot right now is made about uh, the resistance and how you resist um, some of the deeply inequitable and extremely frustrating policies that we're seeing out of the Trump administration. And, you know, I honestly think that while we need to continue Demonstrating and need to continue f- filling the streets and need to continue advocating and need to continue talking about how what we're seeing right now is just not normal. Um, the biggest form of resistance is the will to build bridges with other people and to have conversations um, often about about shared human experience with people who see the world differently than you do. And unfortunately, um, you know, on on the left, at least, and this is the group that I usually spend time with, um, on the left, uh, we don't often realize that we are agents of the same polarization Uh, that we are decrying from the right, right? And when people use language like stupid or hateful or whatever to talk about other people, what they are doing is willingly being a part of the same problem that has separated us. And there used to be a time in America where um, just the circumstances of our existence, the fact that there wasn't a such thing called the internet, uh, meant that we were brushing shoulders with people who thought about the world differently than we did all the time. Um, And unfortunately, I think more and more of our social engagements are done online where you <laughs> Everything about you is posted about you. And um, and so people willingly self-segregate socially. Mm-hmm. And then the spaces where you share a conversation or a bite to eat with somebody who sees the world differently than you do um, have fallen. And we're seeing more and more even physical segregation uh, in communities, right? People moving out to the coasts and then leaving communities in in the middle of the country. Um, that is driving a, a certain non-coherence of our conversation that has allowed this moment to persist where you can't even see the human humanity and somebody who sees the world differently than you do because you've never met them or talked to them. Mm -hmm. And I think if we really are serious about any form of resistance, it's going to be willing, being willing to sit down with people who disagree with us on very fundamental things. That's how we
1: met. Yeah. (laughs) That's how we met. (laughs) That's true.
2: So we dignify their humanity um, and recognize that uh, even if, you know, I disagree with you fundamentally about our politics, I love my mom and you love your mom. Mm -hmm. That's great. We all love our moms, right? Or I love my kid and you love your kid. Isn't that awesome?
1: Yeah, I do a, a, another show. That's how I met uh, how I met Saba, and the opening, the opening dialogue comes from uh, President Obama's farewell address, and part of his speech was, "Are you, you know, do you think it's hard talking to someone on on Facebook? Try talking to them in real life, which is what the whole show is predicated upon: uh, is sitting down mm-hmm. with people who disagree with you." And at the end of the conversation, because you know, a lot of times people disagree with an idea or a, a group of people who they've never met. They just assume they believe this way and everybody's monolithic. And at the end of the day, people have left the show that I've done and said, you know what? You changed my mind or, you know what? I still fundamentally disagree with you. But at least now I don't think you're an idiot. Now you're a human, mm-hmm. right? Now you're a human being. We're going to go out and we're going to have drinks at the bar down down the street together. Do you want to come? So – absolutely tracking with you there. That's absolutely important, but we're losing that so much in this mm-hmm. age of social media. So it's very important that people continue to get in the room, sit with people that you disagree with, hear from them, maybe have your perspective change or maybe explain your perspective better. So And
0: how powerful that emotion is too. I mean, I recently had this experience too. I mean, you're so right. We self-segregate on so many levels and we're going to wrap up now. Um, but when you do take yourself out of that comfort zone and that bubble and you um, form a connection, and I agree with you. I and i think it's why i love what i do too and love what i'm doing here um just that the power of making connections and that feeling it's like nothing you will never get that feeling when you're just with your self segregated group i think so um again thank you so much for being here i'm just going to end with um uh just um another uh quote from uh from your website um from uh, i'm sorry it's www
2: abdul from com. Oh, right. um, all uh, one word and all words
0: that's right abdul is called to public service by a core belief in people he believes that all people can thrive when we value each other and our communities we seek to protect and defend all vul- our vulnerable and when we create the kinds of opportunities that empower people to dream for a better future and um, and I think that it really exemplifies um, you as a person, and I'm so happy that we were able to have this conversation.
2: I'm honored to have been here. I really appreciate your time and uh, appreciate the conversation spaces that you're creating, and, um, yeah, I look forward to crossing paths again soon.
0: Great. I know we will. Thank you so much. Thank you, Calvin. Hey, no um, problem. And thank you, Jess, to our sound engineer here. My pleasure as always. And we'll see you all next time or hear from us <laughs> next time on another episode of Unsung Heroes. She
1: said where she was.